0: Hi, I'm Rob, and thanks for discovering season one of Two By Guys. We hope you enjoy it. So in season one, we recorded everything in person. It was pre-pandemic, and we used professional sound booths. And as you'll hear, the audio quality is pretty great. But it was also very complicated and expensive. And when the pandemic hit, Those booths became impossible. So, in season two, we tried recording interviews locally while chatting on Zoom, which kind of worked, but the audio quality was spotty. Sometimes people made manual mistakes with the recording. It was a huge hassle for me to receive the files, convert the formats, compile the audio, edit by hand. I knew I needed a better solution if I was going to continue the podcast and Zencaster was that solution. The thing that was most important to me, knowing how the process works, is that the audio gets recorded locally, not over the internet like Zoom does. When you get up to seasons three and four, you'll hear how good the audio quality is. It rivals what you're about to hear from season one, which was recorded in professional sound booths. And it's so much easier and cheaper. Everyone can record from home with whatever equipment they have, even just a laptop's built-in mic. And then there's the editing and post production. I used to have to go through every track manually, reducing background noise, mixing volumes and levels, making sure my guest and I were synced. Now, Zencaster post production takes care of all of that and delivers ready to upload files. So, if you're thinking about starting your own podcast, I highly recommend Zencaster. It's easy, it's affordable, and it's very reliable, and the sound quality is great. And now if you go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and enter promo code 2BUYGUYS, you'll get 30% off your first three months. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R dot slash pricing promo code 2BUYGUYS for 30% off your first three months. It's time to share your story with Zencaster.
1: Hello, and welcome to Two Bye Guys. This is Alex. And I'm Rob. And we have a guest with us today, actually uh, Megan Madison. We're glad to have you here, Megan. Hi, Megan.
2: Hi. Welcome. Thank you.
1: So, we're very excited to have Megan here. Uh, and just to give you a little bit of a bio about Megan Megan Pamela Ruth Madison is an early childhood scholar, activist, and practitioner based in New York City. She holds a B.A. in Studies in Religion and an M.S. in Early Childhood Education. Currently, she is pursuing her Ph.D. at Brandeis University's Heller School for Social Policy. And before graduate school, Megan was a preschool teacher in Chicago. So Megan works as a trainer for the Center for Racial Justice in Education, The Human Root, and the New York Early Childhood Professional Development Institute, where she facilitates workshops for teachers on race, gender, and sexuality. She is proud to have served on the governing board of the National Association of the Education of Young Children, Currently, Megan serves on the board of directors for Jews for racial and economic justice.
0: Quite the bio. We're very lucky to have you here, Megan.
2: I feel lucky to be here.
0: And also, we are personal friends. We are. (laughs) And I've known Megan for a few years now, and uh, she has very great insights on all this stuff that we're going to talk about today. And I'm excited to have that conversation. Me too. So welcome, Megan. I guess let's start by asking you, how do you identify uh, on any and all spectrums you would like to identify? on?
2: Oh, what a good question. This could be the whole interview. Yes, (laughs) Um, that's my plan. (laughs) Yeah. A few things that might be relevant to share. I identify strongly, proudly, unapologetically as a black person. At the same time, I acknowledge and celebrate my mixed racial ancestry. So my middle names that you shared, Pamela and Ruth, are my grandmother's middle names. Um, my grandma Pam was white. My grandma Ruth was black or African American. So, kind of embracing those middle names is one way that I lift up that heritage. Cool. Um, I also identify as queer. I also identify oh, so many other ways. <laughs> Let's pause there for now, and then more things will get woven in. You know, I have like a personal thing against like the identity listing thing mm-hmm. that sometimes happens because mm-hmm. it feels performative. There's so many pieces of who I am that I want to share with the world and, like, I feel like they come out naturally in relationships, so.
0: Right, and how do you choose what makes the list when you get asked that question? It's, yes, okay, so we'll exactly. we'll continue. If any more uh, pieces of your, of your identity come out, we'll discuss it then.
2: Cool, that sounds
0: good. S- about your queer identity, how did you come to that, and, like, what does that mean to you, and why is that part of your identity important?
2: Uh, another really good question. <laughs> I mean, in part because I do work in early childhood, a lot of my work is, like, thinking back to my own early childhood experiences. And when I really dig deep, it's like, oh, I've always been queer. Like, (laughs) that's just a deep, inherent part of who I am. Mm -hmm. And also, there's a part of that process that does feel like it's been, like, a remembering or recovering that's happened later in life. Hmm. And in part related to the work I do, I think I started doing workshops on gender and sexuality for preschool teachers... Mostly thinking of myself as straight because most of my romantic partners have been cis men and I identify as a cis woman. And then along the way, as I started to really more deeply unpack gender identity, gender expression, sexual orientation, the different pieces of that, it just became clearer and clearer. Like it started feeling like a lie to say that I was straight because it felt like I was like hiding romantic and sexual attraction I had for people of all different genders and also like hiding exploration And so it just started to feel more authentic to claim and embrace a queer identity. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, and that's kind of where Mm -hmm. I'm at.
1: And it sounds like the label queer kind of still leaves a lot of room for you not to have to restrict yourself to anything, right? Like, Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, and I think for me also, queer is a verb to me Mm -hmm. and not just like an adjective. So it's like when I embrace or claim an identity of queer, it's also like making an external commitment to living a life that queers boundaries and aligns with a political commitment to, like, the liberation of all people. And so it feels like it's an identity that feels active and it's, like, calling to me to be in active relationship in alignment with my political values and also be in community um, in a way that, I know, other identities felt, like, more individualistic and queer felt more, like, political and moving... Um, and community oriented.
0: I feel what you're saying so much because yeah. I also came to a queer identity later in life. And it part of it was about looking at myself and what was going on in my head. But it was also in conjunction with learning more about what gender means mm-hmm. and, and how much of it is a construct and what sexuality is and what queerness really is and realizing, oh, That's not this other thing. That actually (laughs) applies to me, and it is sort of a political statement and choice I wanted to make.
2: Yeah, and also, like, I also feel like there's a part of living into that political commitment to me that feels, it feels important to recognize that, like, I'm married, um, and I'm married to a cis man, and, like, most of my life I walk around with people assuming that I'm straight, uh, which affords me quite a few, to put it that's an understatement, literal and figurative privileges in our society. And there's a, a violence in that, right? In that like my how I identify isn't fully seen and recognized in the world. And for the, the most part, that affords me a lot of opportunity and advantage um, at the expense of people who don't have those privileges and advantages, who are members of my queer community. So it feels like also a part of identifying as queer is recognizing that system and doing what I can in big and small ways to push against it, which I can't actually do effectively without acknowledging the ways in which the system of heteropatriarchy benefits me.
0: Right. That makes sense. What do you mean by there's violence inherent in people perceiving, taking mm-hmm. the privileges of passing as straight?
2: Well, it's like a little everyday erasure of my own identity. Mm-hmm um in exchange for outward privileges um and that feels violent to me like it
0: it's like self harm in a way almost uh-huh. right yeah. yeah i think that was so what was hard for me was the time when i was conscious of my queer identity but couldn't talk about it and uh-huh. sort of censoring that every day and passing every day became very challenging yeah so, tell us about uh, the work you're doing with the Center for Racial Justice in Education. So you're leading workshops for educators.
2: Yeah, the Center for Racial Justice in Education, uh, formerly known as Border Crossers, uh-huh. um is a nonprofit based here in New York City, um, but we do work nationally. and we lead workshops and professional development for teachers. Teachers who serve children birth all the way through sometimes high school, sometimes college even. As a trainer, my specialty, like my wheelhouse, is early childhood, so most often I get to work with preschool uh, teachers and childcare workers. But occasionally I'll work with an elementary school teacher, high school teacher, here and there.
0: And so what are those workshops like? What kind of stuff are you actually teaching these teachers, and what's the goal of those, and like, how do the teachers r- respond?
2: Yeah. The we do lots of different workshops, but the kind of the core workshop we do is called talking about race in the classroom, um, and it's a full day workshop, where the first uh, I'd say about third of the day is really setting community norms and getting people ready and willing and practiced in having open, authentic conversations with each other about race and racism. So then, once people are warmed up, then we shift into the content, which is pretty simple, but it's like content that very few of us got in right. our K through twelve education or even college education. Right. And it's kind of the basics of what is race. Like some of us went to liberal arts colleges and learned that race is a social construct, but few of us have practiced really articulating what does it mean that race is a social construct. Like who constructed it? When? Mm-hmm. Why? How does that happen today in schools and in our everyday life. Mm-hmm. So we talk about that. And then once we're clear on what race is, then we talk about what racism is. And again, like Some of us learned in fancy liberal arts colleges that it's a system of power. It's not just about individually held prejudice, Um, but still really unpacking. What does that mean that race is a system of power? Um, Mm -hmm. And in particular, how does it play out in education systems? So then, once we all do all that, we like set the container, we learn a bunch of stuff. Then the last half of the workshop is really applying all of that knowledge. And that looks different depending on the school community. But most often we work with scenarios and do role plays um, so that teachers actually have an opportunity to practice. Like, what do I say? What do I do when a kid asks this question or this thing happens in the news? Like, how am I going to handle a situation Mm -hmm. like that? (laughs) And then we close out.
0: Cool. I was a film major in that liberal arts college and (laughs) I did not learn about any of this. And like and growing up especially, I mean, Mm -hmm. I went to a very white elementary school and very straight in hindsight. Like Mm -hmm. I didn't learn anything about any of this until later.
2: Same. Yeah. I was like at least three years into a Ph.D. program before I really like dug into the research on this. Uh, Um, And that's also not a coincidence, right? That's an example of how racism is institutionalized is like that content is left out of most of our educations unless you really, really, really dig for it.
0: Right, it's made to be invisible so that the system doesn't change.
2: Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's very hard to dismantle a thing you don't know what to call. Right. And you can't point at it and you don't know how it's functioning.
0: Yeah, so how is race a social contract and what do you teach these educators about that?
2: One thing I like to do to explain race being a social construct is to explain, like, what a social construct is. It can be helpful to use other examples of social constructs. Okay. So a favorite of mine that's a little bit silly is uh, salad. Uh (laughs) It's also a social construct.
0: (laughs) Indeed.
2: Um, Turns out you can look up the definition of salad in the dictionary. But, like, in everyday use, salad means different things to different people across space and time. So I grew up in the Midwest where salad can include cream cheese and sugar and canned fruit and sour <laughs> cream. That's a valid thing.
0: You didn't you make a salad for us once that was like grapes and th- all those things. Yeah, <laughs> it grapes. Like grape it's salad.
2: delicious.
0: <laughs> it my, was. Yeah,
2: my partner, however, grew up in Northern California. And he thinks that's disgusting. (laughs) For him, he grew up with the definition of salad that there has to be a vegetable in it. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. Um, But it's just one example of, like, this thing we call salad means something to different people across space and time. And also, just because it's made up, though, doesn't mean that it doesn't have real-life significance. You go to a restaurant and you order a salad, like, people have expectations around what salad means. And so... When it comes to race, it's similar, right? Like we have racial categories, but they have changed over space and time. Um, there's not an essential thing to them. Like it turns out when you take a DNA test, there's more genetic variation among a flock of penguins than there are among human beings. Wow. Um, there's no like biological essential nature to race. And yet like how we are racialized, how people perceive me when I walk down the street really matters, sometimes in life and death ways. And also my identity. My racial identity is very real. Um, So just because the categories are made up doesn't mean that they don't have a lived impact. Um, And then we go into the workshops into a lot of the history around like, okay, well, then who invented – if a social construct means human beings invented it, who? Who were these human beings and when and why? Because also human beings, societies invent things for a purpose, not just for fun. And that leads us to another conversation about racism because essentially race was constructed and serves the purpose of racism.
0: What do you mean by that?
2: Mm. So we've got dudes like James Madison is one of them. My last name is Madison because he likely enslaved my ancestors. Oh, wow. So he's literally sitting down on, I imagine him on some fancy couch. He's got enslaved people bringing him tea. He's got like a feather pen and he's sitting down and he's writing, fuck the British, this is slavery. Taxes are too high. I want tea for free. Um, all men are created equal. This is our constitution, blah, blah, blah. blah. Mm-hmm. So he's writing all this stuff about freedom and justice and equality while he's also participating in the near genocide of indigenous people and the like systematic, legal kidnapping and enslavement of African people. And so this science coming out of Europe serves the function of essentially like smoothing that giant cognitive dissonance. Between the ideals of justice and equality and the reality of massive inequalities and dehumanization of people of color. Hmm. So that stuff gets baked into our Constitution. Like James Madison also helped write the – he proposed the three-fifths compromise. Mm -hmm. So written into the United States Constitution is essentially this idea that enslaved African people aren't fully human. They're just three-fifths of a human being. Mm -hmm. So it's not just like cool ideas on the street. It like gets baked into the policies and practice of our country – And then here we are, not actually all that like far from, (laughs) like that wasn't ancient history. That was like fairly recent history. So it explains a lot of like, oh, no wonder we are where we are.
0: Right. How do kids respond to this or look at race differently when they're exposed to this early on?
2: Young people are amazing. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. I mostly work with like, you know, teachers of really young children And at that age, they haven't been exposed to too much misinformation. So their reactions are often like, ah, cool, great, thanks. That explains Uh everything. You know, they're usually at like three and four, like seeing big racial disparities, especially in New York City. Like they see that all the people on the money have peachy colored skin that people would call white. Mm -hmm. And they see that the bus drivers and janitors have brown colored skin and that people call them black. Right, they see these giant inequities And they have questions about why. And they also see their grown-ups aren't talking to them Mm -hmm. about those. And when people ask questions about it, they get really uncomfortable. And so when a teacher finally actually explains it to them, they're usually just like, ah, thank you. (laughs) Like, this makes sense now. I get it. Um, I remember a great conversation I had with a four-year-old around the racial wealth gap. And he was like, oh, yeah. (laughs) So... If there's a group of people who was kidnapped from another place and that they weren't able to save money and give it to their kids for about three hundred and fifty years, and that was just a hundred years ago, it would make sense that on average those people would not have as much money as white people.
1: Right.
2: And he was just like, Okay, got it. Like, yeah. like you know, and because
1: it's not a complicated concept, really, unless mm-hmm. you've been taught some alternative reality. Yes. Right? As most of us have, unfortunately.
2: Yeah, exactly. We've and then when you work talk- with like older kids, like high schoolers are so fun because they're also coming into sense of their own power. And in that sense, like there's a natural developmental rebelliousness and like, Also, big fucking feelings, which I love about teenagers, like my inner teenager included. And so, teenagers, once they're like, once they have this information, are often like, great, where are we going? What are we going to do? Like, who do I need to write? Where do I call? Like, what action am I going to plan? What community organization am I going to join? Like, there's so much energy there that I love working with older kids.
0: Awesome. So race is a social construct. Race it's, is a salad. It's a salad. <laughs> so how uh, do you think that gender and sexuality are also salads? And and how are they social constructs? If yes. You, if so.
2: Yeah, definitely yes. Okay. A big yes. And I do remember when I started thinking about this, I tried to make them the same. And they're different. Uh-huh. So they're all social constructs, and they look different and operate differently. And so, like, so there's it's like, like
0: a burger or fries or something. Yeah, something like <laughs> yeah. that. Or
2: another social construct I love to use is um, berry.
0: Uh-huh.
2: What's a berry? I don't know. Is a grape a berry? I don't it's know. A small round Maybe. fruit. It's so yeah. much like
0: a blueberry, but it's. I a know. Grape.
2: but it's in the cheap fruit salad. It's not in the expensive fruit oh, it's salad. Oh, true. Good point. And turns out when you actually uh, look up a definition of berry, things like bananas and tomatoes. And most vegetables are also berries. So, oh, wow. berry is another social construct. Oh, it has no. like, it means things to people when we say it. Who knew? Anyway, so okay, gender is on. a berry, <laughs> race is a salad. <laughs> Where were we? yeah. yeah, so gender, um, in particular, this idea of like gender being a binary
1: mm-hmm. um,
2: is totally made up by mm-hmm. society. There are different societies that have made up gender very differently with more than two options. Yeah. yeah. And,. We live in the United States in 2019, and the way that at least gender was constructed for me um, and lots of other people is that there's only two options, and that those options correspond with your biology, um, in particular your secondary sex characteristics, whether you have a penis or a vagina, and that there's a whole bunch of things, expectations that go with those boxes, including how you dress, who you're attracted to, what you want to do when you grow up how much you like the color pink, like a Mm -hmm. whole bunch of BS, like what rules you're supposed to perform, what your personality is, how you're supposed to talk, who you should be friends with. Yes. All kinds of stuff loaded into this tiny little constraining box that actually no one fits into.
1: Right. Mm -hmm. And
2: so we've got these two boxes, man, woman, girl, boy, male, female. And that's the way it's been constructed. And yeah, they don't fit.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yes. And yet we're all we're all walking around trying to fit into those unless you identify as queer and maybe look at those boxes differently and start opening them up.
2: Yeah. And it's not because we're like bad square people that we try to fit into those boxes. It's like there are literal social sanctions. When we step outside of the box, society pushes us back Mm -hmm. in in sometimes really subtle ways and sometimes really explicitly violent ways. And so. Also, in some part, like, our conformity to these boxes has to do with, like, we're just trying to survive.
1: Yeah. Well, and as somebody who is queer and queer presenting, like, I, like, fitting into that masculine male Mm -hmm. box is easy in a lot of ways, right? Like, you are perceived in a certain way that makes life easier. Mm. But that violence that you're talking about, like, that violence is there, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it's because... It's unnatural, right? Like, and we're putting so much expectation on us instead of just having that freedom.
0: I definitely repressed a lot of non-masculine things about my identity early and just didn't think they were important. And like, you know, as I started to learn about this stuff and embrace those parts of myself... I realized how much damage I was doing by trying to fit into that box.
2: Yeah. And the more I do this work, the more surfaces that I didn't even realize that it was there. Like, oh, like what? the first couple of years of doing this workshop, actually, the gender and sexuality workshops I do are through the uh, New York Early Childhood Professional Development Institute. Cool. The first workshop is all about gender. The second is about sexuality. And then the third is about family diversity. And the way we start the first one, the gender workshop, is asking people to think back on some of their first gendered memories. And it was like a few years into doing these workshops until a memory surfaced for me that like I just legit had not remembered until I had gone through the same activity over and over and over again. And I remember being a kid and SNL was like really popular and really funny. And I would love like staying up late on Saturday nights with my sisters and watching SNL. And there was this skit, Pat. Pat. Do you remember uh, Pat? I I definitely
0: remember Pat.
2: Yeah. And I remember my family teased me. They called me Pat.
0: Really? Yeah.
2: And I, I didn't get it. But something about me and the way I presented gender in the world was clearly reading something that, like, the people who loved me and knew me most were like, oh, that's kind of like Megan. Megan's like Pat.
0: Well, and the joke with Pat was that you mm-hmm. couldn't tell if Pat was a man or a woman. And every time somebody thought they could identify them, Pat mm-hmm. would say or do something that made you think the opposite, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: And wow. it was a punchline. Pat's gender identity was. It was the punchline. Unknown and a punchline. Yes.
1: Yeah. Wow. Sorry, you, you I didn't I did not know Pat You're and too that, young for Pat? It, that that hurts a little. They right? even made a movie. Yeah.
0: They made a, I think there was a movie called It's Pat.
1: So really just like a movie to make sure that we know that this is this is funny. Mm-hmm. Like somebody who doesn't like fit into a, one of those boxes that we're talking about, like is just a punchline. Yeah. Okay.
2: That was the whole punchline. That's
1: cool. Yeah. So I'm like, (laughs) in
2: this workshop, this memory surfaces because people are talking about being made fun of in lots of different Mm -hmm. ways because of not conforming to the gender boxes in ways that also resonate with me, right? Like if you're a girl and you climb trees, people often call you a tomboy, right? Or if you're uh, assertive, people call you bossy. So as people are in the workshop are sharing these memories, I was like, oh, yeah, people call me Pat. I think that had something to do with SNL. What is that? So then I go home and I rewatch these YouTube videos and I was just like, whoo, like, it like hit me a wave of like, no wonder I repressed this shit. Like, that's intense for the people you love and trust. And so my guess is like, as I continue doing this work, it's just going to be 60 more years of like unpacking memories like that and figuring out what they mean to me and recovering pieces of myself that I shoved way down for my own survival. And also, like, it's really healing to do this work because, like, as I engage in that, I get to, like, I'm not doing it all by myself. <laughs> like, I get to do it yeah. in a room full of other people who are also doing that work with one another. So we get to support each other and are, like, just together, like, whoo, this is really hard and it really sucks and it's not fair and it's not our fault. And, look, we have this amazing opportunity to build classrooms where that kind of violence isn't going to happen because we're grownups now and we get to make sure it mm -hmm. doesn't happen to kids so that they will have a whole year, at least under our care, where they get to explore gender and be their full selves and just like feel what it's like to be in the world in their bodies completely. And like they'll never forget that.
0: So what is that ideal year like for preschool kids? Like how do you set the parameters of gender? How do you talk to kids about gender? what's their response like?
2: Yeah, no, I love that. That question alone makes me want to go home and just, like, make some art about it. (laughs) Like, get really clear on what my vision for gender justice is. Some things that I think are probably true in that vision. A lot of my work I do has, we use the framework called anti-bias education, which has, like, four core goals. The first is identity, which is, like, every child will know who they are have language to describe who they are, and feel proud about who they are. That's awesome. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good space to start. Yeah. The second goal is diversity. So that's like every child understanding that not everyone is the same as them. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and knowing how to hold space um, and lift up and celebrate the fact that different people have different identities and experiences. The third goal is justice. And justice is basically like, okay, so... Our classroom might be this gender justice utopia, but we don't live yet in a gender justice utopia beyond the four walls of this classroom. So when we see sexism, when we see patriarchy, when we see heterosexism, kids will be able to see that and name it and mm-hmm. say out loud from a like deep belly place, that's not fair. Mm-hmm. And then the last piece is activism. Is like, okay. so when we see these unfair things in the world and we can name them, what skills do we have to resist those systems, either independently or with others, and to build alternatives that feel better for us and feel just and feel safe?
0: All those things are the types of things I've been trying to learn more about, but it's taken so many years. How do kids now who get that kind of environment... How do they perceive gender? Like, are they cool with gender as a construct? Do they get trans and non binary identities more easily than adults seem to have a lot of trouble?
2: Yeah. I mean, little kids are super dope. And they're also human, right? Like, I also don't want to romanticize little kids. Like, uh-huh. <laughs> And that is a tough thing in my work. There is this kind of – I think lots of grown-ups have a hard time acknowledging that, like, three-year-olds can be racist and sexist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, they can really do mean things to other people, to grown-ups. They're human beings, full of agency and complexity, just like grown-ups are. And also, they're super dope. And when given the space, because a lot of it – like, it's not rocket science. It just makes sense, kind of like you said earlier. Like, if they're exposed to that knowledge, like, I've definitely been in preschool classrooms where they're like, oh, yeah – This person's a girl. This person's a boy. This person's an in-betweener. This person felt like a boy yesterday, but now today they're a girl. Like, this person's neither. Like, it's pretty, like, nonchalant. In a way that, like, for us as adults, because we had, like, 30, 40 years of socialization, it feels like a big deal to change those ideas. For them, they've only had one, two years of socialization. So they're like, okay, cool. That didn't work. Let me throw it away. Yeah.
0: So you see kids that young sort of trying out different gender identities and talking about it in that way?
2: Yes, definitely. Definitely. So uh, another friend and person you could look up on the internet who's doing really good work, NC and Pastel, they are working with a group called Gender Justice in Early Childhood. They have a great website. And I had an opportunity to go visit their preschool classroom. And it was just so magical. Like, I walked in, NC introduced me, like, this is Megan. And, like, it was actually one of the young children who was like, okay, great, that's Megan's name. But when we're not using Megan's name, like, how should we refer to Megan? Does Megan, like, she or they, or he, and then soon was like, yeah, you could just ask, and so then they asked, and I was like, oh, yeah, she and her and hers feel good to me, like, okay, cool, and then I was like, well, and I just met you, and I know your first name, but I don't know how to talk about you when I leave, and so then we all sat down, and we had a little tea party, (laughs) like, we went around, and everybody had an opportunity to share their name, their gender identities, anything else about them that they wanted me to know it wasn't a big thing. It was just like, oh, yeah, sure, we can do this.
0: Right. Yeah. It's like a simple starting point, which seems so difficult to get into some adult's heads. Like, oh, I have to put my gender pronouns in an email or I have to do that group meeting anytime I'm with new people. But, like, that's better for everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's not difficult.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Just like the expanded use of like the word they, the singular they, like using that because I I work with a lot of people who I don't necessarily know their gender, right? Or what pronouns they like to use, right? So just being trained and training young people to use the word they, like I don't know if that's a part of what you do, but like it automatically breaks down a gender expectation that they have on individuals just based on appearance or based on a name or based on something like that. I'm also curious a little bit like it still kind of strikes me as like at least me 10 years ago or five years ago would have been kind of unnerved by seeing all of this, right? Mm. Like, it reads to us as progress, but it reads to some as instability Mm. of some kind. Mm -hmm. Do you witness that? Do you see that kind of reaction?
2: I definitely see it in myself, right? Because, like, also, (laughs) like, I've grown up in this and have not stopped consuming these daily messages um, of the gender binary and of sexism and heterosexism and patriarchy. So I definitely can empathize with that feeling because it comes up, I see it in myself. And I definitely see a lot of grown- up feeling that fear. And young people actually are like very helpful for me in that. Like when I actually spend time with them, the beautiful thing about early childhood is that there is a lot of experimentation that like, oh, man, Woman, person, oh, person, do I wish (laughs) that I had had time to explore in that way at that age instead of like now feeling kind of awkward that I'm like early 30s trying to do all this exploration publicly? I got a job and stuff. It just would have been much easier (laughs) had I had the space to do it when I was four. Um, So, like, I love that young children have the space to explore and play with pronouns, play with gender identity, play with gender expression so that they can figure out what fits. And also, like, they're pretty clear. Like, there's a lot of stability. Like, it's not uncommon for me to meet a four-year-old who's like, no, I'm a boy, I know I'm a boy. No, I'm done playing, I explored, I had an opportunity. Like, I know, right, like they really, there's a depth and a clarity of knowing who they are, especially because maybe they haven't been inundated with so many other confusing messages.
0: (laughs) My exploration of sexuality, I feel, is very tied to my new understanding of gender. Mm -hmm. And those, they sort of came together. So how early and in what ways do you talk about sexuality with kids? Or do you start with gender and does that conception of it as a spectrum or as fluid or as a construct, does that just impact their view of sexuality?
2: Yeah, all of it, both of it from birth. Uh And it looks different. Right. Like, so I'm not usually talking about sexual intercourse right. and even marriage, really, with like infants and toddlers. But when we think about sexuality as not just being about sex and it being about our relationship to our bodies, our relationship to our feelings, relationships with other people and communication, um, relationship to our gender identities, relationship like what we're attracted to, relationship to our own desire Like, babies definitely have bodies and feelings and relationships and desire and intimacy. Like, those are all things that babies from birth have. And so talking about those things starts that early.
0: Sexuality is about all those things. And when I came out as bi, it affected all of those Mm. things, like my feelings and my body. And it wasn't just sex, sexual intercourse. However, that was what I thought sexuality was. And I Mm. had to learn in my late 20s and 30s. That sexuality meant all these other things too. Yeah. So, so it's yeah.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I'm just so grateful I had an opportunity to go to the first workshop because I remember walking into that workshop being pretty terrified and like I remember just even the feeling of my body of like I'm going into an early childhood workshop around sexuality like ah (laughs) I don't even know how those two words go in the same sentence sex and young children. Right. And in particular, the only training I had received, and this was, like, 10 years into a career in early childhood, the only training I had received was mandated reporter training, Mm -hmm. which is essentially, like, sexual abuse identification reporting procedures. So, like, all the feelings I had associated with early childhood sexuality were, like, worst-case scenario. Mm -hmm. And so it was so helpful to be in a workshop that just was, like, yes, those feelings make sense. They are welcome. Here, process them. And also there's a whole world of sexuality beyond sexual abuse, beyond sex and really fun conversations to have with kids and that are coming up all the time. Right. Like when I finally had space in this workshop to like just acknowledge young children masturbate, they touch their bodies because it feels good. And I was like, oh, phew, it's not just me. Okay, that's like a thing. Okay, and it's totally natural. Great, now let's talk about it and figure out what to do about it. Or Because yeah. yeah. they're like super curious about their body and what yeah. it does. All of their things. Like they're curious about their fingers. They're curious about their nose. They're curious about what their boogers taste like. And they're curious when they wake up and they have an erection. And they're like, what is this? Why did this happen? Does everyone's body look like this? If somebody's body doesn't look like that, what do I call it?
1: Right. Yeah.
2: What does it look like? Does it change when I get older? Like just all of these supernatural things that, like, once it was demystified, I was like, it felt like I could breathe. I was like, oh. Right. And it was that feeling of like, oh, goodness, wouldn't this have been so great if my grown-ups <laughs> were talking to me about this way earlier?
0: Right, because when we were growing up, that kind of stuff was relegated to like one hour a month in health class. And everyone was like laughing about it. And it wasn't really informative. It was a joke. Mm-hmm. And I masturbated at a very young age before I knew what I was doing. Looking yeah. back, like I had no clue what it was. There mm-hmm. was no education.
2: Same. And like I had carried so much shame.
0: Right. You that. I was like, maybe I'm broken.
2: Maybe this is wrong. I don't know. It feels good, but nobody's talking about it. Right? right? Yeah. Right. But if someone had just been like, Ooh, I see you're discovering your body and experimenting with that what that feels like. Like Right.
0: And other maybe people not, do that. And it's, it's other other people do
2: it. It's yeah. totally normal. Um, maybe not at the grocery store. Maybe in <laughs> your <right>. be- <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> like maybe in your bedroom when you get home. You know? I was like, Okay, cool, I can do that.
1: we're talking a lot about how you know conversation is just stifled right like we're mm -hmm. not able to talk about sexuality at a young age and now in our personal lives like stereotypically like how often do we actually have real honest conversation about like the sex we're having
2: yeah totally and the consequences of that are huge right that silence like there's the internal violence of like just swallowing silences and not being able to speak them and, like, holding on to that shame, like, that's not good for any of us Mm -hmm. in our bodies or in our souls and our emotional selves. There's also, like, just the practical health implications of that, right? Like, if people don't feel like they can talk honestly, they're not having the conversations they need to have to have safe sex. Completely. And then beyond just, like, our survival needs, I also feel like a big thing I'm going through as an adult now is, like, mourning the loss of so many possible pleasurable experiences mm-hmm. that I didn't have because I didn't have language for it. And I didn't have an, enough language to be able to ask for like, this is what I want. Yeah, And I also didn't feel entitled to getting what i wanted or pursuing so many desires and like i'll never get those 20 years back mm-hmm. now i get to spend the next 60 years of my life seeking after them and it's going to be <laughs> fucking awesome yeah.
0: But yeah. like, <laughs> right.
2: I, I want everybody to feel what did lizzo say recently like we all deserve to feel good as hell right like yeah. i want everyone to have a fucking great orgasm every day <laughs> there's no reason we shouldn't like everyone be, would yeah. be so much happier we would be better at our jobs. Yeah. We would just be like nicer to each other. Uh, so many fights on the subway probably wouldn't would be prevented. <laughs> <laughs> and, like but that's also only possible if we're able to like break that silence and learn yeah. the skills to just like talk openly with other people about what we want.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great completely.
0: utopian vision for the future. Yes. <laughs> yeah. orgasm of day, I, I love it. Uh,
2: yeah, I can't claim that one is my own. I got that <laughs> one from Adrian Marie Brown.
0: Oh, cool. Okay.
2: Um who wrote a book called Pleasure Activism that yeah. I'm reading and it's yeah. changed my whole life. It's so good. Highly recommend.
0: Yeah. I had that same experience coming out as around age 30. I was like sad for myself that I didn't do that exploration sooner and that I may have missed out on things, but then I was so happy that I was doing it now and that I had as much of my life ahead of me as I do. I'm like, it's better to do this stuff early, but it's also never too late.
2: Yes, it is never too late. And especially to like other bi and pan people. Like, it can be really, really confusing. Yeah. It's really hard to figure out who we are and what we want. And like, that's not our fault. And like, I just want to, like, buy a bouquet of roses or, like, whatever flower makes people feel good. Or if it's not flowers, whatever does make a person feel good (laughs) for, like, everybody who's in their 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s. And, like, even at that age, like, coming to a realization of what they want and experimenting with it. Like, that gives me so much hope. So, yeah, it's never too late. And there is, at least for me, like, a sense of real groundedness and pride that, like, I really worked to figure this out. Like, it
1: wasn't just handed to me.
2: Like, it took some work. And, like, I feel a depth of security and knowledge that and in some ways, like, really grateful for myself for, like, having done that deep exploration.
0: So you do this work teaching educators about race and gender and sexuality. How is the approach to those things similar or different? And, like, is there some intersection among those?
2: Yes. All of my work is rooted in in critical race feminism, like a black feminist lens. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: And so I can't do a workshop on race and racism without talking about gender, without talking about sexuality, without talking about capitalism, without talking about ableism. Mm -hmm. Similarly, I can't do a gender workshop without talking about racism and all those other things. It's just kind of for each workshop, there's a different anchor or an entry point. And I love those moments when there's connections between them, like one that often comes up in the gender workshop. And for me, I guess, wow, we're going full circle to where we began, talking about my identities and being both black and being queer. Perfect. Yeah, look at that. So often we do this activity with the gender boxes where people surface, like what are the expectations for girls and women in our society? What are the expectations for men and boys? And often one that comes up for girls and women is that we're small, we're dainty, we're damsels in distress, we're somehow attractive to men. And there's usually a moment where there's a couple women of color in the room who are like, ah... Mm-hmm. Not really <laughs> like I've never been expected to be dainty or a damsel in distress like I'm expected to be the mule of the world I'm expected yeah. to be sassy and angry and like maybe a subject of like lust and sexual desire but never like romantic like there isn't the stereotype that men are like pursuing us romantically And that's a beautiful example of intersectionality, of the ways in which, like, our gendered expectations are placed on us are also racialized. racialized. And so in some ways, that's also why, like, my queer identity is a black queer identity. Mm -hmm. Um, Identity as a woman is a black woman, right? Like, it's all in there, both in how I identify and how I
0: experience the world. Awesome. That's a great full-circle place to leave us.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It was so great having you, Megan. I think this was a really fantastic discussion.
0: Yeah, thank you very much for being here.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I feel so honored. Thank you for sharing your stories with me. I'm very grateful that you both exist in the world exactly (laughs) as you are, and I'm very grateful that this podcast exists. Thank you.
0: Well, thank you, and we're grateful for you and your stories as well.
1: Our music is by Ross Mincer, graphic design by Caitlin Weinman. This podcast is edited by Moxie Pung and is also produced by Moxie Pung, Matt Loomis, Rob Cohen, and me, Alex Boyd. Thanks for listening to Two Bye Guys.